You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, on today's program, I have a special offer for you for some free information. We have now available our 2020 forecast, our 2020 economic and market forecast. I'm going to share with you on today's program where we see things going next year. Let me remind you, though, right off the bat, if you would like to get a copy of the 2020 forecast, you'll get it when you request the New Retirement Rules book. A bit about the New Retirement Rules book. The New Retirement Rules book was on the Amazon bestseller list when it was released back in 2016. We now have the third edition of the book available. Go to MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com and you'll get not only the 2020 forecast, but you'll also get your free copy of the best-selling book. So again, MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com to get the 2020 forecast and a copy of the book. Now, when it comes to putting together and publishing a forecast relating to markets and economies, there's really no such thing as a crystal ball that works with 100% accuracy. So I need to start with that. But when you take a look at the economic and financial trends that exist in the world today, the eventual outcome is obvious in my view, and our 2020 forecast issue of our newsletter looks at these trends and then extrapolates what these trends might mean for personal finance and investing. Now, in a nutshell, we don't expect any major new trends to emerge in 2020, but we do expect that existing trends will continue and intensify. Now, the first, and in my view, the most important of these trends is that of easy money or continued money creation by central bankers. Now, if you've been a longtime listener to this radio program, you know that in our fractional reserve banking system, money is loaned into existence. This has to do with the reserving rules under which banks operate. So presently, bankers are required to reserve 10% of depositors' assets, and the remaining 90% can be loaned to other bank customers. Now, in the past, central bankers would create money by reducing interest rates. The lower the interest rate, the more money that occurs, and the faster money moves, and this results in money creation. Now, some of you... Older listeners probably remember a man by the name of Paul Volcker. Mr. Volcker was chair of the Federal Reserve from 1979 through 1987. And in March of 1980, in response to the massive inflation that was taking place, Mr. Volcker made the incredibly bold move of increasing the Fed funds interest rate from 10.25% to 20%. He just about doubled the Fed funds rate. Now, I know we sometimes talk about things that are pretty technical on the program, and if you're not familiar with the Fed funds rate, the Fed funds rate is the interest rate at which banks lend money to each other, usually on an overnight basis. See, banks don't really earn any interest on the 10% reserves they're required to keep, so they try to stay as close to the reserve limit as possible without going under it. And banks lend money back and forth to maintain the proper level. So Mr. Volcker understood very well that by raising the interest rate, it would be more expensive to borrow, and borrowing would slow, 
And when borrowing slows in this system, so does money creation. So Mr. Volcker raised interest rates to combat the rampant inflation that existed in the 1970s. And since inflation is technically defined as an expansion of the money supply, by raising interest rates, the money supply contracted as people borrowed less and Mr. Volcker got the desired outcome. Inflation subsided. Now, in the late 1980s, when the Fed funds rate was over 9%, then-Chair Alan Greenspan began to reduce interest rates until they fell below the 3% level in late 1992. Again, some of you more seasoned listeners may remember the recession of the late 80s and early 90s, and many analysts believe that recession was the primary reason George H.W. Bush lost re-election. Bill Clinton's campaign rallying cry, which many of you remember, it's the economy, stupid, resonated with voters. Well, Greenspan's strategy worked. The 1990s was similar to the 1920s, which was a period of time known as the Roaring Twenties, and it seemed like economic expansion was everywhere, and in a sense, it was. But in both time frames, economic expansion was fueled by debt accumulation. Remember, when money is loaned into existence, you have to have more debt to have more money because money is debt. Now, as a result of this debt-fueled economic expansion, a bubble formed in stocks, technology stocks in particular, and in calendar year 2000, the bubble began to burst and stock values plummeted. In fact, the technology-heavy NASDAQ Composite Index collapsed from 4590 in February of 2000 to 1288 in October of 2012. On a percentage basis, that's a decline of more than 70%. Now, I know this is a forecast issue, but bear with me. The bubble created by money creation predictably disintegrated, but Mr. Greenspan went back to his playbook. Unfortunately, the playbook contained only one play. Let's reduce interest rates, let's increase borrowing, let's get more money created, and let's get the economy moving again. By August of 2003, the federal funds rate dipped under 1%. Money was created and bubbles once again began to form in stocks, and in this time a real estate bubble also formed. Money creation, through whatever means, creates asset bubbles. By 2006, the federal funds rate was once again over 5%, but it was too late. The bubble in stocks and real estate caused by money creation had already formed, and they burst. Now, Mr. Greenspan had retired in February of 2006, and Ben Bernanke took his place. Now, not only did Mr. Bernanke inherit Mr. Greenspan's job, it seems that Mr. Greenspan left the playbook on the desk. Not wasting any time, Bernanke began to reduce interest rates to create money to once again jumpstart the economy, He dropped interest rates to zero, but this time, the go-to play in the playbook didn't work. You may be wondering why. And the simple answer is this. When the system has reached its capacity for debt accumulation, money cannot be loaned into existence because there's not enough borrowing. To put that another way, when the collective system can't afford another payment, it doesn't matter what the interest rate on the debt is. Imagine in your household, if it took every dollar you brought in to meet your living expenses and service your debt, it really wouldn't matter what the interest rate on a new loan might be. Bernanke 
had to add a new play to the playbook. So what did he do? He created money literally out of thin air, called it quantitative easing, and started to buy assets from member banks. And this has been going on ever since that time, with more recently the Fed creating money to stabilize the repo market or the overnight lending market between banks. Now, interestingly, the Fed had less than $1 trillion on its balance sheet, but by the time Mr. Bernanke got done creating money, he had almost $4.5 trillion on the balance sheet. So it was just shy of $4 trillion in money printing, and that money creation is continuing to today, and that is the big theme of 2020. This trend will continue, and this trend will create consequences. I'll talk about the consequences in the last segment of today's program. However, if you'd like to get your own free copy of the 2020 forecast, we'll give that to you along with the best-selling New Retirement Rules book. All you need to do is go to the website, mynewretirementrulesbook.com, and request it, and we'll get you out a copy of the 2020 forecast as well as the New Retirement Rules book. The website again, mynewretirementrulesbook.com. I will be back in the last segment to give you specific forecasts for different asset classes. You'll want to be sure to stay tuned for that, but also stay tuned because after these words, I'll be chatting with Mr. Carl Denninger. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening today. Hey, joining me uh, in this segment is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, if you're not familiar with Carl's work, I would encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org. He is a prolific commentator, very bright guy, and uh, always appreciate his perspective. Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me on. Carl, let's talk a bit. We chatted a bit before we started to uh, record the, the segment about what's going on in the repo market and what the Fed is likely doing behind the scenes that they don't want anybody to think that's what they're doing. So let's just start for, for our listeners just that, that may not understand any of this. Explain, if you will, what is the repo market and why does it exist? So the repo market is a, a means of gaining short-term cash given that you have some kind of asset. So let's say that you have a mortgage that you are carrying. Of course, nobody does one mortgage. So today you would have a bond that is comprised of these things. And and the supposed value of this thing is, um, say, $100 million. Okay. And you would like to have uh, some amount of cash in order to just do your, you know, perform your normal operations. So you go to a bank and you you essentially put that bond on them. They give you cash. You pay a small interest charge for this. And the the understanding is that tomorrow or two days from now or whatever the term of this is, and normally they're very short term. They're overnight. They're, you know, tomorrow, whatever have you. Uh, you give them the cash back and they give you the bond back. And in exchange for the privilege of doing this, they charge you an interest charge, which is very close to the overnight rate federal funds because, you know, face it, the, the risk that is being taken by the lender is extremely small, or at least it's supposed to be. Uh, what, get, what causes trouble in this market is when the value of those assets moves overnight, because the reason that somebody's willing to do this 
is not so much the the risk that they're they're going to get stuck with it because that can happen but doesn't happen very often it's that if the value moves then the amount of money that they gave you and the charge that they put out there no longer corresponds to the risk that was taken all right so these these markets are are used all the time and in fact their primary use the reason they exist is because if you cash a check at your bank there is a period of time in which your bank is cash poor because they gave you cash and the bank that it was drawn on is cash rich because they haven't settled the transaction yet. So what the repo market allows the banks to do is balance their books between themselves on a daily basis. And there is an awful lot of this that goes on every single day and it's totally normal. Um, but when you start to see wild moves in the expectation of the value of the collateral that's being posted, then either the banks step away from those transactions completely or they start charging a very high rate of interest for it because there's the possibility that when the time comes for you to take that asset back, if it's gone down in value by 5% overnight, you're going to say, well, go ahead and keep it. <laughs> okay. And now all of a sudden the guy's got a loss. So, Carl, just to maybe maybe paraphrase that for the benefit of our listeners that, that, that this is all news to, uh, essentially banks are doing this just to maintain their reserve requirements. They, they, they're they borrowing back and forth overnight or for just a short term, and uh, they're using it, as you say, to balance their books and, and maintain reserves. So in, in mid-September, we saw interest rates move from like 2 to 10% literally overnight. So the only reason that interest rate would jump that much. And of course, the Fed did jump in, and we'll talk about that, is that there had to be a lot more perceived risk in these short-term loans. So so what's your take on what happened and what's been happening? Well, that's that's exactly right. Essentially, what occurred is that for whatever reason, the banks came to believe that the possibility exists that the value of these assets will move sufficiently during the term that the cash is out that the person who borrowed it may not want it back. In other words, they may default on purpose. Okay, not, not because they can't pay, but because they choose not to. Now, there's nothing illegal about doing that, but if you gave somebody um, you know, 99% of, of $100 million, right, for, and, and you know, when you have a 2% interest rate, what is that charge on a, on a daily basis? It's, it's essentially close to zero, right? So you give somebody $99 million, if that bond goes from being worth $100 million to 95, and I'm the person that had the bond, why would I give you the $99 million back and take the bond back? That would be stupid, right? <laughs> so why wouldn't I just go ahead and tell the bank, oh, you keep it? <laughs> right? which, which now all of a sudden they lose $4 bucks, and that loss is real. So you know they could sue you, but yeah, okay, go ahead, have fun. The that's essentially what caused the seize up is that there was a perception in the market that that was happening. And, there, and what I believe is occurring is not that this is occurring within the banks, within clearing in the banks, because it just it typically doesn't happen there. But rather, you have hedge funds and private equity people that have been using this market as a way to fund their operations and their their acquisitions and their business interests throughout the economy. They've been doing that by posting their the the collateral which consists of the the notes on the deals that they've done in previous years and that market has problems all right so now if you were going to jp morgan to do this 
and you're doing this on an everyday basis and you're rolling it over every day and you're just you're just forking up the you know the tiny little percent because let's face it two percent in a two percent interest rate world to do this is very cheap all right to get your cash you don't have to go out to investors and raise money you can do this instead because it's so inexpensive as long as you can make two more than two percent a year you're way ahead and and so this cuts everybody's capital requirements down and it works right up until somebody thinks that what you're putting on the bank isn't going to be worth tomorrow what it's supposedly worth today. And then the market seizes. And that's and, and this market is not supposed to be used this way. This is an abuse. It's a legal abuse, but it's an abuse. But this is what happens when you have very low rates for a long period of time is that people that normally wouldn't be doing this kind of thing come into a market like this and use it. So Kyle, would it be fair to say that you know, this market was primarily used, uh, you know, in the banking system, and now it's been expanded to include hedge funds and and other entities that you know hadn't typically historically used this system. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, this is this is not a this this system was devised and put together originally um, the tri-party repo market for the explicit purpose of balancing bank reserves. That's why it exists. So. Let's talk about what this collateral might look like, this collateral that um, maybe uh, a lender doesn't trust. Uh, when you say that the hedge fund might have you know, p- pledged uh, paper from some of the deals they've done, what, what, what exactly does that mean for our listeners' benefit? Well, let's, let's just take one example. This is, this is, and I don't know that, that any of this paper was involved in it, but WeWork, for example, went out and signed leases for enormous amounts of commercial real estate. And their premise was that they could do 10 and 20 year real estate deals in the commercial market, which is a totally normal thing. And then they could rent you the space on a month by month basis. Well, the problem with that is, is if you go out of business and you're paying them month by month, you have no long-term obligation. They can't sue you for the rest of the lease. They, the money just stops coming in, but they still owe the cash on those long-term leases. Well, if they don't have it, then this note that they that you know essentially they took from WeWork is worth nothing. So if you are posting up that kind of paper in the repo market and somebody all of a sudden turns around and says, uh, we have reason to believe that tomorrow that's only going to be worth ninety five cents on the dollar instead of a hundred, then suddenly that market stops working because the I have to as a bank I have to price that that overnight loan for the risk that I'm going to get stuck with only 95 cents. And so now all of a sudden my overnight rate on that is at least 5%, right? Because otherwise I'd be crazy. Yeah, so Carl, what the the, the Fed now has stepped in and uh you read that they're injecting liquidity into the repo market. And again, for our listeners benefit, what does that mean? What is the Fed doing? The Fed is essentially printing money. They are putting cash out there unbacked by anything in exchange for these securities. And, and they are essentially taking the risk that something bad will happen to them during the time they hold them. Now, as long as that doesn't happen, then this inures to the Fed's benefit and ultimately all but the operating expenses go back to the Treasury of the United States because that's what the Federal Reserve's governing law says is that any excess you know any any excess profit that they have after they pay their operating expenses goes to the treasury um so essentially what has happened is that without any justification at all in law or anything else 
The Federal Reserve has assumed the risk of these securities on their balance sheet. So, Carl, this is uh, this is very similar to what what the Fed did, you know, back after two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when quantitative easing first became a policy. I mean, the Fed literally just printed money to take all these toxic assets off the books of the bank. So, this is really just more of the same. Well, it's even worse than that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> you look at what happened after, you know, with, with TARP and TALF and all the others. TALF, as, as an example, um, was a program where securities that were were questionable were bought with Fed money, with loans from the Federal Reserve. The only people who got them were people like Hunter Biden, by, who, by the way, specifically was involved in this through a, a subsidiary with himself and his business partner that he's partnered he set up in the Cayman Islands. They got these loan. They got a loan from the Federal Reserve to buy these assets, these bonds that people believed might be worthless or worth a lot less than they were marked at. And it's a heads I win, tails the taxpayer loses deal because if the if the investment performs, then the the company that does this, that gets this privilege, gets to keep the profit. They pay the loan back to the Federal Reserve, and therefore it's not inflationary because the money goes away. All right. But if they bought this at 60 cents on the dollar, for example, and it's worth 100, the 60 goes to the Fed because they borrowed the 60 cents. The 40 goes in their pocket. They get to keep it. All right. Now, that's that normally, if it was your 60 cents, would be just fine because you, you take a risk, you make an investment, you win or you lose. The problem is that if the if it wasn't worth sixty cents, let's say it was worth twenty or zero, then the loan is no recourse. So the company that did this just says, oh, well, you know, oh, so sorry, so sad. They they don't make any money, but the taxpayer eats the sixty cent loan. So, Carl, I've I've read different numbers, and we've got just maybe two minutes left in this segment. Uh, but I've read different numbers as to what actually uh, all this ultimately cost taxpayers, and I've seen numbers of up to like seven trillion dollars. What, what's your opinion? You're talking about from the 2008 timeframe? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's very hard to quantify because a number of these deals, um, in fact, the vast majority of them, over long enough periods of time, actually paid off. In other words, Hunter and his business partner, had they put up their own money, would have profit. So they paid back the Federal Reserve, the, the funds that they, you know, that they had, had borrowed, and they kept the rest. The problem was they took no risk. So exactly how much this actually cost the taxpayer is an open question. But what we do know is that about $4 trillion went onto the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. That was issued cash that went into the economy on a permanent basis, raised the cost of things for Americans, including specifically things that you can't offshore, like health care. And, and that cost increase continues to go on to the present day. So quantifying that in an accurate way is very difficult. But the hidden inflation that was shoved down everybody's throat is very real. Well, our guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website, uh, where you can actually find his blog, I would encourage you to do that, is market-ticker.org. And uh, Carl will be coming back for another segment, and we'll get his take on where the U.S. economy is and maybe even talk a little politics. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. 
Joining me on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. If you happen to miss the last segment, Carl has a terrific and very active blog, market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, Carl, let's shift gears a little bit in this segment. Let's talk about the health of the U.S. economy. I've had uh, many guests on the program um, over the past several months that feel like uh, a recession is inevitable. Uh, if you say that we're in a recession already, what's your take? Well, a recession is inevitable. There's always recessions. I mean, the Fed seems to think that they can prevent one from ever happening again, which is, I mean, that's insane, but that's what they believe. Uh, but I just want to take a quick this employment report. This last one was very interesting. The headline number was 266,000. This is what we were told was the, the, the gain. Uh, that includes the BLS's guess. In other words, what what they think people started in new businesses and you know that sort of stuff, and and it's got this so-called seasonal adjustment. I don't use that number at all. Uh, the unadjusted household survey showed negative one hundred twenty-two thousand. Okay, so that's just the survey that they take from people without any adjustments, without anything on it, and that's a huge difference between two sixty-six, right, one twenty-two. But being in November, that is actually in line with historical expectations for a November. So it's it's fairly normal. That number doesn't interest me so much. The number that always that I follow more closely than anything else is what I call a population corrected employment rate, and that is because we still, despite all the people saying we're all getting older. Oh, by the way, we're we're losing people in the workforce. That's a lie. We put a about two million people a year into the workforce. And that's been going on for a very, very long time. So that's that's roughly what the number is. Um, and in that, there's the adjustment to that comes out in the January report every year because that number is a guess throughout the year as well. But so if you take the change in working age population and the change in employment, and you subtract out the increase in working age population, you now get the actual delta of people that are working as opposed to people that are not, right? I mean, this is just basic logic, right? What percentage of the population is working that is eligible to work? And starting in August, we saw a dramatic turnaround. Now, that number had been deteriorating for quite a long time, the last couple of years, in fact, um, all the way back. Uh, the deterioration began back in, in the early part of 2017. So I've been tracking it for a while, and that's a very concerning number. When you when that number goes negative, you've got big problems. They they don't show up immediately, but you've got them. And we have had a negative number in that column for a very long time. And then after the recession, it went positive for a while. When Trump first came into office, it was it briefly spiked higher, um, and then it was deteriorating. But in August, it all of a sudden turned around and went from essentially zero on an adjusted basis to 900,000 positive in one month. Now, that's an, in, that's an incredible ramp. Now, what does that correlate with? The tariffs. All right, phase one tariffs that were announced and were about to go in in September. And the interesting thing about that is, while it has slacked off a little bit, as of this last report, it's still plus 618 on a 12-month basis. So it was 911, then 939, then 784, and now 618. That is a very strong number. That is suggesting that we are gaining approximately a third 
more jobs than we are putting people into the workforce. Now, you think about that. Think about the size of that. You put, you know, you put two million people into the workforce every year, and and you put six hundred thousand people to work beyond the two million. So the two million all get jobs, and then another six hundred thousand people beyond that find jobs. Right, that is a huge change, and for that to be maintained over a period of four months um, on a positive basis is is and be correlated with this specific change is quite interesting. So this clowns the claim of those people who said that these tariffs, as soon as they went into effect, it was going to decimate the American employment market. It did exactly the opposite. So, Carl, that that just doesn't. I mean, I, I can just imagine somebody listening to this saying, "Wait a minute, tariffs." Uh, are essentially taxes, um, why would that correspond with or be related to such an increase in the real employment numbers? That, that just doesn't make sense. How do, you, how do you square that? How do you reconcile that? Simple. It's tax avoidance. But, uh, tariffs are only taxes if you choose to pay them. Who's, who says you have to pay them? Where, where do people get this idea that you can't move what you do? I don't, I don't under, you know, I've never understood this argument. People always say, well, tariffs are taxes and the consumer always pays them because the, the consumer always ultimately pays all taxes, right? Now, that's a true statement. The lie in it is that you're assuming that I have no choice. It's, it is similar to, I, you know, I used to make mid-six figures a year, and by choice, I don't work that hard anymore. Now I make low to mid-five figures a year. Because I cut down my lifestyle on purpose, so I don't pay those taxes. Am, am I required to pay the former six, you know, right six-figure checks to the IRS every year? Of course I'm not. I can change my behavior. You think businesses can't do the same thing? So what are businesses doing specifically? Well, they're moving production, and they're and they're moving the stages of production, and and evidently from the data, some of the that which used to be performed overseas is being performed here. So the tariffs are having the desired effect when, you know, many, many analysts said it was a huge mistake. Well, it's the data says it's not a mistake. The data says that it is leading people to get employed because manufacturers and other firms are bringing the work back into the U.S., so, Carl, what would you say to people that say, you know, a recession is, is imminent? We're already in a recession. Certainly these numbers don't seem to to uh, confirm that or, or validate that opinion. Well, today that's, that is true. However, you have to remember how we're doing a lot of this, and that is by printing federal deficits in excess of a trillion dollars. It was uh, approximately $1.3 trillion last fiscal year, not the 800 and some that they claimed. Um, you look at debt to the penny over a 12-month period to get the real number. The reason that there's the difference is that they they don't count a lot of the entitlements, specifically Medicare, which is which is cash negative. Now, Social Security, but not to a large degree. Medicare is and Medicaid in particular are enormously cash flow negative. Between those two programs, they had doubled their spending since Barack Obama was elected. And we, what's going to drive the next major move in the negative direction in our economy is that the extraction that is coming from that segment of the economy is unsustainable. And we seem to think that we can just continue to ignore it and run the crank the federal deficit higher. But within the medical system, that impact is not just felt by the federal government in the form of deficits. It's felt by workers in the form of wages. 
because if you know when you look at the cost, the average cost of single employee coverage in the United States at employer level these days is close to ten grand a year. Family coverage is close to twenty. Now think about this: if you're the average person with a fifty thousand dollar a year salary, if you had an extra ten thousand dollars a year to spend, what that would do to your personal economic situation? It'd be huge. All right. Yeah, well, now it's not going to go to zero. Okay, I mean, you know, we have to be realistic about this. But 80% of it should go in, in a free market system. 80% of it would go away. You'd have $8,000 a year in cash in your pocket that you could spend. That is an enormous amount of money to a middle class person. It's it's just, it, it's my, I mean, you can't even fathom that, all right? That's a, that's, you know, you, you we're talking about what, a third of a car here? I mean, that's a, that is a crazy amount of money. And it, it, the problem is, that we are putting 400,000, approximately 400,000 people a year to work in, and would show up in the employment report in the medical system, and nine out of 10 of them never provide a single second of care to a single person. They're all administrators, and their job is to see how badly they can screw you. That's what they do all day long. Yeah. And so... It's funny you mention that because I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just uh, I just read a piece. Uh, in fact, uh, over the weekend, we're recording this on uh, on Monday. Uh, that the since uh, 1971, the number of physicians in the system has in, increased commensurate with the population, but the number of administrators has increased over 3,500 percent. Correct. It's it, you're, you're, if everyone for every 10 people who get hired, approximately one is either a physician or a nurse. The yeah. other nine, the other nine, their entire job is jacking you out of the money. So explain to our listeners, we've got just a few minutes left here, what you mean by that. I mean, how does that happen? Well, if it, you put together coding systems and so-called negotiated pricing with insurance companies and things like this in such a way that you don't care about efficiency. You don't, you know, the, the most efficient transaction is always the smallest one, right? If, if you and I, you want me to fix your roof and I come out there and I nail some shingles on your roof and you pay me, that is the most efficient transaction. If an insurance company pays for it, it's less efficient because the insurance company has to get paid. The people who work for it have to get paid and therefore the price is going to be higher. And that's just the way it is. When you put all these people in the middle, they, you know, they, they have to get paid. The insurance company does not care. In fact, it wants a less efficient system because insurers are regulated by law and they're only allowed to make a percentage. So if you're an insurance company, do you want to make 10% of a million dollars or 10% of $10 million? This is not complicated, but that is the facts behind every single insurance system everywhere. It has always been that way and it always will be, and it will never change. So the only way to stop this is to force everyone to post a price and everyone pays the same price. And now what deal you have with your insurance companies between you and them, but you have to get a bill and whether I pay with insurance, whether I am on Medicare or Medicaid or whether I pay cash doesn't make any difference. It's the same number. And now the, the hospital here and the one five miles away are both going to pound each other over the head to try to get the business. And problem is from an economic perspective, 90% of the people who work there are going to get fired. And that is why the politicians won't do it, because it'll be an instant recession. And that 20% of the population that's currently there that does nothing other than screw you out of your money every month, they will get hurt temporarily until the economy adjusts to this. 
But the short-term impact of this is that you take four or five million people just just from they've been employed over the last ten years and immediately throw them out of work. Well, I would love to continue the conversation, but the clock tells me we cannot, so we're going to have to have you back down the road, Carl. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Carl's website is market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. And, uh, Carl, thanks again for joining us. Anytime at all. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining us on today's program. I'm chatting today about the 2020 forecast issue of our newsletter that we are making available to all of our listeners this week. If you'd like to get a copy of the 2020 forecast issue, all you need to do is go to the website, myneuretirementrulesbook.com, and we'll send you a copy of the forecast issue as well as the best-selling book of the same title. Uh, The book is New Retirement Rules, and if you go to myneuretirementrulesbook.com, we'll send you the book and the forecast. Well, in the first segment, I talked about the fact and gave you some background that the Fed is literally creating money at this point. And when you look at the reality of finances in 2020, it has a lot to do with where we believe things are headed and what our forecast is. Because in a word, when you look at the finances of the U.S., it is sobering. The official national debt is now over $23.1 trillion. On September 30, 68 days prior to debt hitting $23.1 trillion, the official national debt was about a half a trillion dollars less. So in 68 days, the official national debt of the United States increased by a half a trillion dollars. That means the United States over that time over that time frame spent nearly seven and a half billion dollars every day that it didn't have. Let that sink in. Over that sixty-eight day time frame, the United United States spent seven and a half million dollars each and every day that they didn't have. Now, so often these numbers are so big that they really don't mean anything to us. See, there are just 129 million households in the United States. However, 44% of those households, according to the Tax Policy Center, pay no income tax. That means 72 million households do. And if you're in the group that does pay income taxes, here's what that math means to you. Over that 68 days from September 30 to December 7, the government spent $104 on your behalf each day that they didn't have tax revenue to cover. Over the course of a year, should that trend continue, your share of the deficit is more than $38,000 and you haven't begun to pay down any debt. If the debt was going to be paid down, in addition to the $38,000 you'd have to kick in to cover the deficit, you'd also have to fork over another $320,000 or so just to pay your share of the debt. And we haven't begun to address the even bigger areas at issue. Many sources put the combined Social Security and Medicare underfunding levels at more than $100 trillion. That means the share of this problem per taxpayer is somewhere around $1.5 million. Now, when you look at numbers from that perspective, breaking it down on a per-taxpaying household basis, it's clear there's no logical way out. And certainly there are no shortage of politicians out there 
uttering rhetoric to the contrary. But here's the reality. We could confiscate 100% of all household wealth, and we still would not solve these problems. You have only two options. You cut spending, or you borrow and print currency. And the deeper in debt you go, the more you're forced to resort to creating currency. So that brings me to world currencies, because this plays into our forecast issue. And if you're just joining us, the 2020 forecast issue of our newsletter is being made available to all our listeners this week, along with the best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. If you'd like to get a copy of the forecast issue and the book, all you need to do is go to MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com. Now back to currencies. Every currency in the world today is a fiat currency. And a fiat currency just means that the currency is currency because the government by decree or by fiat says it's currency. A fiat currency is not backed by anything tangible. Now historically speaking, fiat currencies have come and gone, but for most of history, money has been something tangible or has been backed by something tangible. Prior to 1933, one-ounce gold coins were widely circulated as money. Chunks of gold were used as money. They were known as $20 gold pieces. Up until 1965, silver coins in the United States were minted out of silver, and paper silver certificates could be redeemed for the silver coins. No more, and no more anywhere in the world. That makes it easy to print currency. See, currency is not wealth. As we've talked about in the past, currency today is simply a claim on wealth. As the currency is devalued, it claims less real wealth. That has been and remains to be one of the biggest threats to a comfortable financial future, and the recommendations in our forecast issue revolve around this reality. Now, we believe that it would be prudent for investors to think about and consider incorporating more tangible assets or more real wealth in their portfolio moving ahead. The staggering levels of debt that we've talked about and the trillion-dollar-plus deficits for as far as the eye can see will mean that the policymakers will likely continue to rely on outright money creation to a greater degree. And while we're suggesting that many investors consider consider tangible assets for some of their portfolios, what we are really suggesting is that stored wealth or stored economic energy be diversified. Economic energy is what's earned through our own labors or by assets we put to work for us. So here's an example. Let's say you go to work and you earn a paycheck and you get currency when you cash the check. You can... Spend it for living expenses, you can put the money in the bank, or you can save it by exchanging it for a tangible, real asset. Now, I'll close with this example. You earned $250 20 years ago by, by working, and if you use the money for rent or food, it's gone. But if you save the money by putting in a savings account and you had earned 3% interest on the money, today you'd have about $450. On the other hand, if you'd put the money into a tangible asset like gold or silver, you would have preserved more of your economic energy. In the case of gold, today you'd have about $1,400, and in the case of silver, about $950. Now, the point is that 
if you don't have tangible assets in your portfolio, and I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form in your entire portfolio, but some of your portfolio, you'll want to consider it. And we've got some guidance that we offer in our 2020 forecast issue. And again, you can get a copy of the 2020 forecast issue along with the New Retirement Rules book by visiting the website, mynewretirementrulesbook.com. The website, again, is mynewretirementrulesbook.com. Just let us know where to send the book and the 2020 forecast issue, and we will be very glad to do that. Hey, I hope you got something out of today's program that you can use, and I'll be back again next week, same time.